Good afternoon and welcome to Forest Fires. My name is John Clark. Today is August the 31st, 2021, and it is National Overdose Awareness Day. When I awoke this morning, I had no intention of doing a podcast today, and I especially had no intention of doing a podcast on National Overdose Awareness. But based upon some conversations that I had throughout the day and some information that I learned, it became evident to me that this is something that I wanted to talk about more, something that I wanted to dig a little deeper into. It's a sad and revealing truth that we as a country have to have a day like this at all. But here we are, and we have to have this day for a number of reasons. Every year, the number of American men and women that fall victim to this disease continue to grow. It appears that all of our best efforts, our greatest attempts to quell the overwhelming tide of preventable death have failed. Every year, more and more families look upon empty chairs at their dinner tables and upon family photos knowing that a loved one has lost their fight to this deadly disease. Alcoholism and drug addiction in this country has grown to such a level that we can no longer refer to it as a problem. We must call it what it really is, a plague. This podcast is not intended to criticize any political party, any president, any administration, any judicial system, judge, administrator, or any specific effort that has been taken. It is only intended to suggest that our means and methods of addressing the issues that face our country in regards to drugs have failed, and they have failed at an epic level. As a casual student of history, my lay perspective is that the war on drugs appears to have been a war on drug addicts, more so than it ever was an attempt to combat the actual substances. If, in fact, there ever was a war on drugs... The evidence suggests that we are losing it badly. Statistics in regards to drug use, alcoholism, relapse rates, etc. are thrown around almost indiscriminately. We've heard the numbers so very often that many of us have stopped listening. There isn't a person in the recovery rooms, regardless of your fellowship, that isn't hyper aware that statistically speaking, the vast majority of us are doomed. While I think that we often focus too much on the statistics rather than the real human element of this disease, I do believe that it is important to look at the most recent statistics released by the Centers for Disease Control. These statistics are shocking. They are disturbing, and in many ways they are discouraging, especially to someone who works in the recovery field. The CDC recently released addiction and overdose estimates for 2020. While these are not hard and fast numbers yet, they are indicative of the ongoing and growing crisis in our country. According to the CDC, 28 U.S. states saw more than a 30% increase in overdose deaths in 2020. 10 states saw a 40% increase in overdose fatalities. According to the preliminary data, only two U.S. states saw a minor decrease in overdose deaths meaning that 48 states saw more people than ever die from overdoses. 
According to the CDC, 2020 was the deadliest year in our history for overdose deaths. More than 93,000 Americans lost their lives in 2020. This is more than a 20,000 death increase from 2019, the last record year. It's estimated that 60% of all overdose deaths are related to opioids or synthetic opioids. To give some reference to these numbers, overdose deaths in 2020 are greater than the casualties of war in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and the Afghan War combined. As we know, many of these wars lasted decades. The 93,000 plus overdose deaths I referenced earlier took place in one year. For many years in this country, it was perceived that only bad people did drugs, that drugs were a symptom of immorality, of criminality, and that overdoses that took place were a culling of our weakest elements, that these people got what they deserved. This is a fiction that we can no longer entertain. Few of us have been able to escape the wrath of this plague. I have rarely met a person that hasn't been directly or indirectly impacted by the rise in overdose deaths. Almost every person I come in contact with knows of someone within their own family or in close proximity to their family that has died as a result of an overdose. While there is no escaping that drugs and criminality go hand in hand, it is ignorant, it is dismissive, and it is insulting to assume that every one of the 93,000 Americans that lost their lives to this disease in 2020 were criminals. These are our sons and daughters, our mothers and fathers, our friends and our neighbors. These are our brothers and sisters. These are human beings. Since the early 1970s, we've been enthralled in the longest supposed war in United States history, the War on Drugs. In June of 1971, President Nixon declared a war on drugs. In an effort to combat what was perceived to be growing drug culture in this country, Nixon pushed through legislations that would increase the size and presence of federal drug control agencies. He established mandatory sentencing guidelines for drug-related offenses, and he legitimized no-knock warrants in regards to drug raids. While Nixon's alleged real rationale for starting this so-called war is the stuff of crime novels, it's not something that we're going to delve into in this podcast. Regardless of your political affiliations, your thoughts on President Nixon, or your thoughts on drugs in general, I would encourage you to look into it. Read the interviews with Nixon's aides, and I would be surprised if you're not as shocked and disturbed as I was. In the 1980s, the war on drugs took on a new shape and form. The presidency of Ronald Reagan marked the beginning of a period of exponential growth of drug-related incarcerations. The number of people behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses increased from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 by 1997. The media is as much a culprit in this war as is any government agency. In the 1980s, a broad campaign was initiated that fanned the flames of fear against crack cocaine. It made good headlines and it drew viewers in. 
It was during the same time that Nancy Reagan spearheaded the Just Say No campaign. In the years since this Pollyannish campaign of abstinence was started, we've learned that it was not supported in any way by research, science, or experts in addiction treatment. It was a good soundbite, and the pictures of the First Lady with children all wearing their matching Just Say No shirts made for feel-good press pieces. Sadly, though, it perpetuated a mindset that drug addicts and alcoholics were simply unable to say no, that there was something morally and mentally wrong with drug addicts and alcoholics. It was more of a moral failing than a disease. These were just bad people doing bad things. The actual science of disease medicine at this time was revealing something completely different. The revelations coming from disease science was lost in the mix, though overshadowed by the louder and better-funded voices in the media and government. Federal dollars were not flowing into drug and alcohol research, science, or treatment, but rather into incarceration and punishment. The government at this time seemed more concerned with using fear as a motivation for abstinence than actual science. By all reports, this clockwork orange concept has been an epic failure. The 1980s also saw the rise of zero-tolerance drug policies. Los Angeles then-police chief Daryl Gates was quoted as saying casual drug users should be taken out and shot. Again, the mindset that drug addicts and alcoholics were bad people doing bad things and that they were not capable of getting any better was perpetuated. Addicts and alcoholics were vilified and publicly shamed. The media and culture used fear to influence Americans, and it worked. Americans appeared to widely support these draconian policies because they feared that their own sons and daughters were in danger of becoming addicts or being hurt or worse by these immoral and dangerous addicts. A powerful and pervasive propaganda tool has always been to play upon a society's fear and to call upon a parent's protective instincts. These same tools and techniques are still being used today. You need only fill in the blank of whatever chosen idea is being peddled. In his first presidential campaign, Bill Clinton seemed to advocate moving more toward health and science-based approaches to dealing with America's drug problem. However, after his first few months in the White House, he reverted to the drug war strategies of his predecessors by continuing to escalate the drug war and by continuing to throw more and more money at it. As recently as the early 2000s, our leaders doubled down on the war on drugs. George W. Bush allocated more money than any other president in history to the war on drugs. While rates of illicit drug use remained constant, overdose fatalities rose rapidly. All evidence revealed that our efforts up to that point had failed, and that all sums of money that we had invested were not working. Nonetheless, in an ironic exercise of using addictive-type insane thinking, our, gov- our government simply invested more and more money into the fight. The era of George W. Bush al- also witnessed the rapid escalation of the militarization of domestic drug law enforcement. By the end of Bush's term, there were about 40,000 SWAT-type raids on Americans every year, 
mostly for nonviolent drug law offenses, many of which were misdemeanors. At one point, more than 60% of Americans supported the efforts that were being taken in the war on drugs. However, after the war lost favor in the media, the ideas of the people began to change. During this time, a new front in the war on drugs was being revealed. In hindsight, the front had always existed. We'd just been blinded to it by various reasons. At almost the same time the drug war was starting, certain companies began realizing the potential for their opioid products. Opioids are not new. They've been around since the 1700s. But the 1980s saw the recognition of chronic pain. And by the mid-1990s, pharmaceutical companies had began to aggressively market opioid pain medications. When the scope and extent of the opioid crisis became evident in the early 2000s, governments became harsher on enforcement and punishment of prescription abuse, and some companies even attempted to make their products harder to obtain and harder to abuse. But this ultimately led to an unrivaled increase in heroin abuse. In 2015, opioid abuse was linked to the first reduction of our country's life expectancy in over 100 years. More people died from opioid deaths in 2015 than from HIV or AIDS-related illnesses at the peak of the AIDS epidemic. When President Obama was running for office, he widely supported reforms to the current approach to the war on drugs. While he publicly supported changes during his presidency, little was actually done to change the political climate or the imprisonment culture of prior administrations. Public opinion has now begun to shift in favor of sensible reforms that expand health-based approaches while reducing the role of criminalization in drug policy. This can give us some hope that our leaders will begin to listen to their constituents and facilitate change. As we know, though, wars don't just go away. Since the first stone in an altercation was, was thrown, there has always been someone or something that has profited from war or conflict. The war on drugs is no different. There are still significant political and financial forces that advocate for not just maintaining the current war on drugs, but increasing the severity of their campaigns. These forces continue to do all that they can to reignite the fires and social unrest associated with illegal substances. These forces may well play a significant part in the ongoing divide between cultures and groups within our society. So long as certain parts of our country fear other parts of the country, then we are incapable of seeing that which we should really be afraid of. Because of this, the war on drugs is far from over. Despite medical knowledge, clinical documentation, and disease model research, the Trump presidency resurrected the Just Say No slogan. Sadly, many people in this country appeared to celebrate this return to the past. Few people understood the moral stigmas that had become attached to that so-called innocent statement of years gone past. As recently as 2018, our leaders have continued to perpetuate the morose teachings of their predecessors. 
President Trump at times called for harsher drug-related sentences, and in 2019, he advocated for the death penalty for people that sold and trafficked drugs. Adding fuel to the fire of this drug war is how we as a country punish people. The United States has the world's largest prison population. How and why we incarcerate people is as much a part of the overdose numbers that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast as any form of legislation or policy. The emergence of privately managed prisons was most prominent during the mid-1980s. When President Ronald Reagan, in his inaugural address, declared that government activities needed to be shifted to the private sector, private prisons were born. Private prison corporations have a perverse incentive to discourage prisoner rehabilitation. Likewise, they are incentivized to fill their empty beds like hotels. To do so, private prison corporations send lobbyists to the government at the state and federal level to ensure that incarceration rates remain stable, while simultaneously structuring their facilities so that the rehabilitation of prisoners will inevitably fail. Naturally, this creates explosive rates of recidivism. They are financially motivated to advocate for harsher drug laws, more severe sentencing guidelines, and higher inmate populations. While we continue to claim that our legal system is one of rehabilitation, all evidence suggests that we have adopted a warehousing philosophy and simply wish to lock away our undesirable elements from the public eye. The truth is, the war on drugs never existed. It was a legal fiction designed to make good press briefings, and it did. Whatever efforts were invested in stemming the tide of drugs coming into and infecting the United States, they failed. While the 93,000 people that died as a result of overdose in 2020 wore no uniform, served no cause, and will never be remembered as heroes, they were indeed victims of a failed war. Casualties. No longer can we arrogantly and ignorantly believe that the overdose numbers and the staggering numbers in regards to addiction and substance abuse pertain to bad people. After all, a significant portion of the overdose deaths that have been reported arose from legal opioids that were prescribed by licensed physicians. If we want to change the tide, if we want to see the overdose numbers reduced, then we, we members of the recovery community, we must start changing things. We must lift each other up, celebrate our victories, and challenge each other to become better, stronger, and more resilient members of our society. It is through our changes that the world can see that addicts and alcoholics are not bad people, but rather sick people that are trying to get better. The change starts with us, not with our government, not with our judicial system, and not with our prisons. So many of us complain that the world is against us, but we are not doing anything to change the public perception. It is our responsibility to be the change that we want to see. Today, reach out to an addict or alcoholic that is suffering. Lift them up. Share some hope. Be an inspiration to others. It is our job to create the community that we want to live in. It is our responsibility to create a community that celebrates others and invites them in. Today, let's be the community that we need to be 
to be the community that our neighbors need us to be. Today, let us remember the more than 93,000 Americans that lost their lives due to overdose. And let us do our best to help others avoid the same fate. Live the recovery you deserve. And through that, be a beacon of hope for others. As always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening and thank you for helping others. Continue to stay reachable, stay teachable, and stay humble. Thank you.